Welcome to Concord Matters, a show seeking for concord, agreement in Christian confession. Concord mattered to Jesus and Paul, and so it does to us also. Spend these next 60 minutes as we talk matters of Concord. Concord Matters, a program produced by the Christ-Centered Leader in Confessional Broadcasting. Worldwide KFUO, online at kfuo.org. And welcome to Concord Matters, the show where we seek to be of one mind, that is the mind of Christ. And to do that, a couple of Christ-confessing Concordians confer with the Book of Concord to conform what we believe, teach, and confess according to Scripture in our Lutheran Confession of the Faith. On today's show, we are continuing our series on the Augsburg Confession, today covering Article 23 on the Marriage of Priests. I'm your host, Pastor Sean Smith, pastor of Bethlehem Evangelical Lutheran Congregation in Mason City, Iowa, and my companion, confessor, in conversation about this article today is Pastor Sean Kilgo. He is pastor of Redeemer Lutheran Church in Lawrence, Kansas. Pastor Kilgo, welcome to Concord Matters. Hey, it's great to be here. And you know it's going to be a good show because you have two Sean's that actually spell their name right. <laughs> indeed. Spelled with a real Irish masculine spelling. Indeed. But uh, even more than that, I think it'll also be a good show. And I'm going to go out on a limb here and say right at the beginning that we're probably going to run out of time for the show today to talk about all the things that we want to talk about. Because while on the one hand, it may seem like there's not much to talk about here. I mean, not much has really changed since the time of the Reformation. On the other hand, we're talking about something that's very important and yet still much maligned today. So, I mean, obviously, when it comes to the matter of the marriage of priests, that's something that hasn't changed much since the time of the Reformation. I mean, the Roman Catholic Church today still doesn't allow for the priest to be married. But, of course, the Lutherans who embrace marriage for their clergy at the Reformation still do today. So, you know, on the one hand, it would seem like there isn't much to talk about because not much has changed. But really, what we're talking about here is the theology of marriage in general. That's certainly what's running behind everything that's presented here in this article. And, of course, that's always a topic of which Scripture and we can have much to say, much to confess, uh, still today and always. So to get right into this, I'm just going to go ahead and start reading here. Now, most of the time as we've been going through the Augsburg Confession here, the articles have been such that we would just read them in their entirety and then just talk about the overall theology. But we're going to break this one up today into a few different sections. And so I'm going to start out by just reading the first nine lines here or so. And of course, a reminder that on this show, we read from Concordia, the Lutheran Confessions, a reader's edition of the Book of Concord, available to you from Concordia Publishing House, a publishing arm of the Lutheran Church of Missouri Synod. And again, this is Article 23 from the Augsburg Confession on the Marriage of Priests, and we'll take just the first nine lines here. Complaints about unchaste priests are common. Platina writes that it is for this reason that Pope Pius is reported to have said, that although there are many reasons why marriage was taken away from priests, there are far more important reasons why it should be given back. Since our priests wanted to avoid these open scandals, they married wives and taught that it is lawful for them to enter into marriage. First, because Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife, and it is better to marry than to be aflame with passion. Second, Christ says in Matthew 19, verse 11, Not everyone can receive this saying, where he teaches that not everyone is able to lead a single life. God created human beings for procreation, citing Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. It is not within a person's power, without God giving a unique gift, to change this creation. For it is clear, as many have confessed, that no good, honest, chaste life no Christian sincere upright conduct, has resulted from the attempt to lead a single life. Instead, a horrible fearful unrest and torment of conscience has been felt by many until the end. Therefore, those who are not able to lead a single life ought to marry. No human law, no vow, can destroy God's commandment and ordinance. For these reasons, the priests teach that it is lawful for them to marry wives. All right, thus far, Article 23 from the Augsburg Confession on the Marriage of Priests here. 
So Pastor Kilgo, they state right there at the beginning that complaints about unchaste priests are common. Now, that was about 500 years ago. Well, not quite 500 years ago, 492 years ago. We just had the anniversary of the presentation of the Oxford Confession here just last week. But anyway, you know, obviously that's still an issue today. The news is always kind of popping up with these things coming up from time to time in the Roman Catholic Church still today. So it's definitely still an issue, even though there's the vow of chastity for priests that just isn't happening, obviously. But then it goes on and it says that although there are reasons why marriage was taken away from priests, and I want to pause there for just a second and say that I think that we should maybe get into a little of that too. You know, maybe best construction, I think we can say that there might be some reasons according to scripture and otherwise that it might be good for celibate clergy. I mean, for myself, I've been a single pastor and now for about as long I've been a married pastor and with children. And just being honest, I think there are definitely advantages to both as it relates to faithfully fulfilling my vocation as a pastor. And definitely both have things that cause me to make some sacrifices in order to fulfill the vocation of pastor. And so there's going to be challenges and sacrifices and benefits and advantages kind of either way you go. And, and I think you can, again, look at Scripture and see some of that reflected as well. So I think it's good for us to kind of wrestle with that a little bit, as I think it helps us understand a bit more why the Catholic Church would take marriage away from the priests. But nonetheless, it does go on and it says that there are far more important reasons why marriage should be given back. And I certainly agree with that. And then, of course, it starts to list some of those reasons there and cite scripture, uh, which is where we want to focus, of course. So go ahead, Pastor Kilgo, and get us into this here. Yeah, so, so like you talked about, I mean, this is 500 years old, but I mean, it goes back even further than that. We'll, we'll get that in the next section. But like you said, there's two sides to this. There was this concern in priests being able to serve the church well, and that's commendable. What they did, though, is they ran too far afield with this and said, well, St. Paul says that it would be best if pastors were single because they can devote their entire lives to the work of the church. It's kind of interesting in the confutation on this, which is the response of Rome to Augsburg. They mention how there is the exhortation in the scriptures for pastors to always be in prayer for their flock. And if they're married, then they're being distracted from their prayers from their flock. Like, I get that. It's kind of a silly argument, though, because you can apply that broadly to all of Christendom. All of Christendom gets the exhortation to pray without ceasing. And so if you extend that out, then like nobody should be married. And that seems like kind of a silly argument then. But to recognize that there is a, a benefit of being able to devote all of your time and energy in serving the church as her shepherd. But at the same time, there are benefits of being married, too. I, I think about this all the time in my own life. I was married going to the seminary. We had one kid before we got there. We had another at the seminary. And so I look back on my time in being trained as a pastor and being a pastor. And there are a lot of things that like, I get in the scriptures and how it will talk about like our, our relationship to God as our father, to Jesus being the son, to the, the mystery of Christ and the church and marriage being a reflection of that, all these sorts of things. And then how the Lord engages with us in discipline. He says he disciplines us as sons, all this sort of stuff. And I understand that differently as a guy who's married and has kids than I certainly would otherwise, because I've, I've just experienced that life. I know what it's like to discipline my own children. And so I've got a little bit of an insight then in my own mind on how this works, and I can bring that out when I'm teaching and preaching and whatnot. So there's certainly benefits to both. But what the confessors are very clearly doing here is they're letting the tension stand of the scriptures that, yes, it would be good if, without any other issues, priests could be unmarried. But it turns out that's not the issue because we are created, as they mentioned from Genesis, we are created for procreation, for companionship with one another for mutual support, all these sorts of things that you get with Adam and Eve that's built into us. And so the, some people get a, a unique gift, as they say, to live a life of singleness and chastity in that. But not everybody has that gift, and that's fine. Like, not everybody needs to have that gift. There are a variety of gifts. 
so you've got all this in the background and you can see that there's this concern about avoiding the open scandals. And what's interesting to me is that, so we always think of Rome with this first off, and then we don't always think of the scandals in other church bodies as well. I, I remember the big scandal with Tullian Chavigian a number of years back. Uh, he's Billy Graham's grandson. I always forget the, the exact relationship there, but he was caught in adultery and had to step down. It was a very big thing because he's this big kind of national public figure. And it caused a major scandal when this happened. So that even when there is a married pastor who is caught in an open scandal regarding the sixth commandment, it's a, it's a big deal. And you can see in the background then that the devil is always trying to attack this, right? And especially to attack the church, both through her members and through the shepherd in regards to the sixth commandment. So they're working to make sure that that's not happening. So if you if you don't have the special gift from God to live a chaste life in singleness, well, then you need to get married, right? And that's a good and godly thing. And marriage is a good and godly gift given in the beginning with Adam and Eve. So part of what they get into here, and I know this has been talked about before, but they talk about the issue of the conscience, right? So they, they say that instead of living a good and upright and honest Christian life, that you have a horrible and fearful unrest and torment of conscience. And this is on two sides, one of which is going to be whether or not I'm justified because of my works, which I know we'll talk about that more. And then the other side is whether or not I'm actually living a God-pleasing life. And I've got all these internal torments and desires, and there's no God-pleasing outlet for them because I'm not married. And so there's just this internal turmoil that's going on. And at the end of the day, I love the way they close this paragraph out. No human law, no vow can destroy God's commandment and ordinance. And that at the end of the day is like the big argument. God has ordained marriage. He's given it to creation and to humanity as a good gift. He guards and protects it and upholds it as a good thing in the sixth commandment. And so you can't take a vow and destroy what God has created, right? Which is even the language that Jesus uses in talking about marriage that what God has joined together, let no man put asunder. And we rightly apply that to the actual one flesh union there. But I think we should also broadly apply that to the whole estate itself. Yeah, I think you're right. This tension is definitely what's going on here. And as I even kind of alluded in setting it up to you is, you know, I, I can kind of see, as you talked about the benefits of both. And I've had the benefit of being a single pastor early on in my ministry and now I'm a married pastor with children and so forth. And, you know, when I was single and so forth, yeah, I mean, you have lots of time to dedicate yourself to this great work that it is to serve in the office of holy ministry. But I'll be honest, I mean, like, it's not like I could still devote all of my time to prayer like they want, right? You know, because, you know, your mind sitting there thinking, man, it'd be nice to be married, you know, and just have that, especially as part of that time I was in a my previous call in a rural parish. And so it's like, you know, I could go all week and not even see anybody, you know, and it's just, uh, you know, you desire that sort of companionship and things that God has instilled in us. But then on the other hand, right, you know, yeah, at times, and I probably have still yet to find this balance, you know, I need to dedicate time to care of my family and being there for my wife and children and so forth, right? And so and then I think back, you know, oh, all the time I had when I was single to do these things and devote myself. So you just kind of live in that tension, right? And so I don't know that there's any answer apart from finding your comfort and consolation in the gifts that God gives you, right? And so this is exactly what they're saying. You know, you establish this human ordinance. And I could even think of that when I was a single pastor, right? You know, it's like if I had to live under the burden of you can never get married, that would just like inflame the thoughts and desire for it all the more. And so, yeah, it just comes down to this matter of they're kind of pushing and forcing this on it. And all it does is obviously stir up all of these other problems that come out as a result of that. And I think that's where they kind of go next here. Well, I mean, not even next year. They've definitely covered that, that there's been these problems, but uh, it does go on a little bit more here. So I'm going to pick up the next several lines here from about 10 to 17. We'll discuss more of this here. So. Continuing on here with Article 23 of the Augsburg Confession, picking up with uh, line 10. It is clear that in the ancient church, priests were married men, 
where Paul says an overseer must be the husband of one wife. And that's a quote from 1 Timothy 3 verse 2. 400 years ago in Germany, for the first time, priests were violently forced to lead a single life. They offered such resistance that when the Archbishop of Mainz was about to publish the Pope's decree about celibacy, he was almost killed in a riot by enraged priests. This matter was handled so harshly that not only was marriage forbidden in the future, but existing marriages were torn apart, contrary to all laws, both divine and human. This was even contrary to canon law itself, as made not only by popes, but also by the most celebrated synods. Seeing that man's nature is gradually growing weaker as the world grows older, it is good to be on guard to make sure no more vices work their way into Germany. Furthermore, God ordained marriage to be a help against human weakness. Canon law itself says that the old rigor ought to be relaxed now and then in these latter times because of human weakness. We wish this would also be done in this matter. We expect that at some point churches will lack pastors if marriage continues to be forbidden. All right, we're going to stop there with line 17. So thus far, again, Article 23 from the Augsburg Confession on the Marriage of Priests. Interesting last line there. We expect at some point churches will lack pastors if marriage continues to be forbidden. We definitely see that in the Roman Catholic Church today. We even see it in other church bodies, even our own church body, where marriage isn't forbidden. And so as the times grow later, as he says here, right? Yeah, I mean, what incentive is there to go into the priesthood in the Roman Catholic Church today? But a lot to cover in there as well. So go ahead and get us into some of this here, Pesco. Yeah, I mean, that last part is every time I read through this, I'm always kind of intrigued by that statement. And I do wonder if there's kind of a, a secondary notion behind that, that not only are you not going to have pastors willing to go into this, but you're going to continue having pastors who are going into the priesthood and then they end up in open scandal and they have to be removed. And I think that that's a bit of what we see like in Rome, for example, where guys aren't always necessarily removed as they ought to be, but kind of get shuffled around or they try and get hidden or, or whatever. Because if you just flat out started removing all these guys, you would have an even larger shortage than what you're already currently seeing. But yeah, I mean, one, I was already married when I was considering the pastorate. So, you know, I'm automatically not allowed to go in if this is the case. And, you know, a good chunk of my classmates were the same. They were already married coming into the seminary. So, you know, you look at already how few guys we have and you probably cut that at least in half of not more. So there's that. But I mean, it's interesting how they start. They say, you know, look, the ancient church, namely the church of the scriptures, you had married men, and he appeals to St. Paul writing Timothy, an overseer must be the husband of one wife. And you go a little bit further, there's even another argument that's in there. He must manage his own household well, keeping his children in obedience, right? So there's like this assumption that the norm is that pastors are married and have children, and that there is there are some who are not, like St. Paul himself, who's writing this, isn't married and doesn't have children. But his main counterpart St. Peter does, right? He's minimum married, uh, very likely as children, right? It, it's a question of whether, you know, is St. Mark his child biologically or just a, a child in the faith? I know that's kind of a big debate, but we know that St. Peter is is married, right? Jesus goes to his mother-in-law's house to heal her. So you see this example in the scriptures that pastors are married. And so that's a, a great argument that they make. And then they note that 400 years ago, for the first time, you get this prohibition. This is actually in the year 1075 when this happens, and it causes just this great turmoil, as they mention. And understandably so, you get someone come in, it's like, hey, okay, by the way, all you guys that are married and are pastors, uh, you can't be married any longer. And all you guys who are studying to be pastors or thinking about being pastors, you can't get married or you have to dissolve your current marriages. And I, I think that's even the, maybe the biggest scandal in all of this is coming along and saying, you know, all you guys that are married and are priests, you have to dissolve your marriages now. And that's fighting exactly against what I mentioned previously from Jesus, where he says that what God has joined together, let no one tear asunder. It's exactly what they do. And it's, it is shameful that that happened. Yeah, I think this is one of those places where yeah, it's not right that they tried to kill the archbishop 
of mites, right? <laughs> but uh, I think they're rightly enraged. I mean, we can have a holy rage against some things or, you know, like a sanctified anger, if you will. I think that there is a right place, you know, like we see in our culture over the matter of abortion and things like that, right? You know, that that's murder. Right. And when we see it taking place and that our culture celebrates it even, right? You know, we ought to be enraged. Now, we should not go out as some Christians do and, you know, inflict bodily harm on others or things like that. And so that that's to be wrong. But again, you know, God gives us this wonderful, wonderful gift of marriage. He gives it to the creation and he specifically gives it, obviously, even to the clergy as scripture itself upholds it, as you said, and as it points out here, right? You know, it says the overseer, a pastor, a bishop should be the husband of one wife. And it goes on to talk about the managing your own household well and so forth, that you may manage the household of God well as well, right? And you talked about from your own experience too, and I, I echo that as well, that, you know, that you learn so much more, you know, one of the things that I think we have hurt ourselves in as Lutherans is getting rid of the term father in reference to our clergy, because, you know, just in that spiritual relationship, there is so much that is much like that of a father. And I learned more of that as I am a father now than I knew as a single pastor and so forth. And so when we see these good gifts of God being, you know, just forcibly squashed and put down, I think there's a right way that we should be enraged against this because they're raging against God's own good word and order for creation, right? Right. I mean, you can imagine like what would happen if Synod and Convention next summer, all of a sudden there's this resolution that gets, you know, just put out there from now on, all pastors have to be single and celibate. Like there would be a riot, <laughs> right? Uh, for good or ill, like there would be a riot about that. Uh, but there would certainly be a righteous anger about that because it is it is fighting against God's institution, and that's never a good thing. That That's never something that we should be okay with. Um, you mentioned this other thing with losing the language of fatherhood. It's always amazing to me because Luther, in the large catechism, upholds this language very clearly. He talks about the four fathers that we have. We have our Heavenly Father, from whom then we get a reflection into the home, our house fathers into the state, the state father, and into the church, the spiritual fathers. And then he says the, the spiritual fathers are the ones that are regarded as the refuse and filth of the world. I, I always think that they should make that the, the seminary slogan, you know, hey, do you want to be the refuse and filth of the world? Come and be a pastor. You'd, you'd only get the guys that really wanted to be there if they did that. But this is an example like where you see the world and Luther's just kind of hitting on this. Luther notes that this is how the world treats spiritual fathers, right? How the world treats pastors. But it's all—it's also because the world does have, urged on by the devil, just this hatred for family, right? I mean, ever since that curse that's spoken to the devil, that the seed of the woman would crush the seed of the serpent, ever since then, you see the devil fighting against family, right? Because family is his downfall, Marriages which produce children are always a reminder of Christ, right? Um, and so he's constantly fighting against saying, you get this great picture in the book of Revelation where he tries to go after the woman and the, the offspring and she's kept safe. And then he goes after all the other offspring of the woman that is like all of Christendom, right? So you're right. There should be a, a righteous anger anytime, not just here with marriage, but anytime there is a very clear fighting against or destroying of what God has built up, but it should be done properly. It should be done in a godly way. And there's a godly way that we can be angry and fight against these things. And that's hard. I get that. But it is a, a tension and a struggle that is worth engaging in. Yeah. I mean, you could just, you know, like write a Augsburg Confession article on it, right? I think that that's a good way that they have responded to this matter in this sense. And then they just uphold marriage. And I mean, you can't hardly read Luther as you were even just citing the catechism and so forth as well. Like you can't read Luther without just seeing him extol this great, wonderful gift of the vocation of marriage and family. Right. And he just, he just goes on and on about it. I think probably the longest section 
in the uh, large catechism is on the fourth commandment. You know, he, he just goes on and on. Yeah, about the, the, that. the first commandment is the longest, but a very close second is the fourth. Okay, yeah. Which I makes sense. It counted. makes sense. I counted. Uh, yeah, <laughs> thank you for the correction. But uh, yeah, I mean, even in that though too, right? You know, again, there's the connection to our heavenly father, which the fourth commandment is that reflection of as we live in this world, right? And so, it's, yeah, it's just, and what we see is, again, paralleling what we see in the culture and as we have seen historically, where the devil has that foothold and tearing apart marriage and family, things only get worse in the culture and get worse, certainly in the church when we do this nonsense too and kind of play along with the devil in a sense and tear apart these things and not honor and regard it as the holy estate that it is, even as we serve in other holy estates, whether that be in the clergy and so forth as well. And that's where this definitely picks up with some of those those things that come out. So I'm just going to go on here and we'll get this in before our break and we'll discuss it a little bit more and then we'll get a lot more into the theology of this in the second segment. But picking up with line 18 here of article 23 from the Oxford Confession on the Marriage of Priests, it goes like this and I'll finish us out here on this article. So while God's commandment is in force and the custom of the church is well known, impure celibacy will cause many scandals, adulteries, and other crimes that deserve punishment from just rulers. In light of all this, it is incredibly cruel that the marriage of priests is forbidden. God has commanded that marriage be honored. Marriage is most highly honored in the laws of all well-ordered commonwealths, even among the heathen. But now men, even priests, are cruelly put to death contrary to the intent of canon law for no other reason than that they are married. Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 4 says that a doctrine of demons forbids marriage. This is clearly seen by how laws against marriage are enforced with such penalties. Since no human law can destroy God's command, neither can it be done by any vow. So Cyprian advises women who do not keep the promise they made to remain chaste, that they should marry. He says, if they are unwilling or unable to persevere, it is better for them to marry than to fall into the fire by their lusts. They should certainly give no offense to their brothers and sisters. And even canon law shows some leniency toward those who have taken vows before the proper age, as has been the case up to this point. All right, and that is the end then of Article 23 from the Augsburg Confession. And Pastor Kilgo, yeah, again, it just kind of what we're laying out there, you know, just inflames and makes a bigger problem. And we see that. And I love the line in there, you know, you, you see where marriage is upheld, you know, that's a well-ordered commonwealth, right? Follows off of this. And yeah, when marriage is rightly understood, our culture tends to be better too. I mean, I'm a firm believer that a lot of the problems that we see in our American culture right now is just because the state of marriage is so such a mess with no-fault divorce and just so many children that don't have a mom and a dad that are actually married and living together in that committed relationship together. I mean, just such a mess that all comes out of, you know, not honoring God's gift as it is given to us here. Right. Yeah. So at the heart of society is marriage. Just fundamentally, society is a bunch of marriages and families interacting with each other. So if you can attack and destroy marriage and the family, you're going to destroy the very fabric, both of society and of the church. I mean, we, we see this affecting the church as well not only in how we think about marriage, but even just in the, the makeup of our congregations and whatnot, and how, how much of this is, has even crept in there. So you can see how the devil is particularly active in attacking the estates that the Lord has set up under the fourth, fifth, and sixth commandments in particular, because if you can attack there, that's at the heart of all of this. And if those fall, and we've seen that, at least the beginnings of that happen, when those fall, society falls with it. There's a fascinating study that was done by a sociologist back in the mid-early 1900s. Uh, it's in this big book called Sex and Culture. And he looks at what is the commonality between like Rome and Greece and Babylon and like the, these big societies that seemingly overnight just imploded in on themselves like how did these great societies that were just ever expanding how did they you know fall 
so easily? And why is it that other societies don't get as big? And what was very interesting is the the one commonality they found between everything was how did the culture view and teach and uphold the estate of marriage and the family? That was the commonality between everything. And the closer those things were to the scriptures, the more quote unquote successful the society was and the further away it got, the less successful the societies were. And this was in fact the hinge point upon which things like Rome and Greece fell. That's the apex is when these things start getting opened up, society falls. And so when we're talking about like, you know, the skin in the game that we have for this sort of stuff, like, why do I care what other people are doing and thinking in regards to marriage and family? Uh, well, because I live in this society too, and my children are going to live in this society after me and my grandchildren. And, you know, I would like the society to actually exist and not be an anarchy. That's just not good. So we have a vested interest in this because everything is built up upon it. And the stronger the family is within society, the stronger society is that's built around it. Absolutely. Uh, we're going to go ahead and take a break here. We're going to pick up more of this conversation, especially getting into the theology of marriage and family. We'll take a look at some of what the apology has to say, as obviously the Roman Catholics did not like this article very much, and so they come back in the computation. So we'll get into some of that on the other side of the break with our guest today, Pastor Sean Kilgo. I am your host, Pastor Sean Smith, and you're listening to Concord Matters on KFU. Hey, pastors, we know you love your clerical shirt because of what it means, but how does it feel? Under all those vestments, is it hot and sticky? Is it too tight, too loose, or just not comfortable? Wicking Vicar has the solution for you, the Performance Clerical Shirt, featuring four-way stretch to let you move and moisture-wicking fabric to keep you cool. Plus, it's machine-washable and wrinkle-resistant. Visit wickingvicar.com and treat yourself to more stretch, more movement, and easy care. The Performance Clerical from wickingvicar.com. Wickingvicar.com. And welcome back to Concord Matters as we continue talking about Article 23 on the marriage of priests from the Augsburg Confession. Here with our guest today, Pastor Sean Kilgo. He is pastor of Redeemer Lutheran Church in Lawrence, Kansas. And Pastor Kilgo, over the break here, you were telling me that you definitely wanted to highlight something that I found absolutely fascinating. And so I'm glad that you want to bring this into the show here. In connection with that line that we had just before the break there, as we finished out reading the article, and this is line 21, but now men, even priests are cruelly put to death. So before we even kind of jump into more of the broader theology and some of the apology and those sorts of things, I'd love for you to go ahead and bring this in. So go ahead and uh, share your thoughts that you shared with me over the break on that line. Yeah. So there's a guy named Paul Sparatus, who's a Swabian guy, and he hears of, of Luther's reform and he goes to actually debate Luther through writing. So he gets his archbishop to gather all of Luther's stuff for him so he could read it and write against it. And in the process, he converts to be a Lutheran <laughs> and he also converts his archbishop. And then Sparatus gets married. Well, he gets a new archbishop in the area, as you can imagine. And this archbishop is not nearly as nice or sympathetic to all this. And he ends up throwing Paul Sparatus in jail because he's married. So he, he doesn't necessarily get killed because of it, as far as I am aware. But it's also, that's the context from which the hymn, Salvation Unto Us Has Come, is written. Sparatus writes this from jail. So that's pretty incredible and how you can see just how wonderful this faith is and how strongly these guys actually believed this. They, they were willing to sacrifice a great deal for these things. It wasn't just hyperbole that, you know, yeah, I will hold to these things even unto death. It's like, no, they're actually getting killed and thrown into prison and this sort of stuff because of this confession of faith, even on articles like The Marriage of Priests. Because it fundamentally what they're dealing with is, are the scriptures true? Just period. Are they true? And are they true in all the things that they teach to us? Even the things that 
might not seem like that big of a deal. As soon as we make any sort of opening for the scriptures are not true, that's a crack that the devil's going to crawl in through and he's going to cause all sorts of havoc, as they mentioned. And so he's a great example of, of a confessor that actually on this article holds so firmly to it that he's willing to be jailed for it. But in the process, writes, you know, one of the greatest hymns that we've got. Yeah, it's an absolutely fantastic story. And, you know, with so many of those hymns, at least for me, when I think of the context of the way that those hymns are written, you know, the, you commonly get this, you know, they commonly come up at Reformation time and so forth as well. And later with Paul Gerhardt, who just had such misery in his life and lead to these probably the most, in my personal opinion, the most beautiful Lutheran hymns that we have. They're written from this place that, you know, the faith is real and actually matters. And it leads forth in beautiful confession. And in connection with this, you know, of course, we so often talk about how the, especially going through the Augsburg Confession here these last several weeks, we've been talking about, you know, at different times how the princes were putting their lives on the line as this is being presented and things of that sort of nature and so forth. And that, you know, even behind that, you know, just to be honest, there's probably some political reasons and so forth that they're willing to do that. But it does matter for the faith for them. But especially, I think that instance is like the case in point of, no, this mattered even at the level, you know, of something that only seems to apply to the clergy. This mattered so much that you're willing to be jailed for it and make that beautiful confession of faith and to suffer these things. You know, you're commonly around confirmation, right? That will suffer all, even death, rather than fall away from this confession and church. Right. That's what all Christians are called to come for. And, and, and I also wanted to highlight that's jumping back to the beginning here. But as we bring out on this show so often, you know, that the, the Lutheran confessions in general were not just some mere academic exercise. They weren't disconnected from the real everyday life and so forth. And this article specifically mentions about the torment of consciences. And that's something you and I talked about before the show even started today. And so, you know, I just want you to bring some of that in here as well, that once again, this matters not even just for the priests who are willing to be jailed and to suffer for marriage because it's God's good gift to us and his word for us to live in, but that ultimately they see this as, you know, for the everyday Christian, this is an important matter as well. Yeah. So one of the things that's going on in the background of this whole conversation of the marriage of priests is this idea that if you, and this is connected like with the holy orders and, and all that sort of stuff, if you took these vows, particularly of celibacy, of poverty, and of obedience, those were the three main monastic vows, that you were somehow performing more godly works, or works that were more godly than if you were married and were a husband or wife, a mother or father. So in, in the background of this is this idea that we are somehow meriting more favor with God because of the particular type of good works that we're doing. So it's even beyond like, do we merit favor with God through good works? But it's like a step further of there are certain good works that we merit special favor with God. And they're making very clear, like, okay, first off, not only is that not true, and this comes out especially in the, the Apology. And it goes back to Articles 4 and 6 of Augsburg that we are justified before God when we believe that we are brought into God's grace through faith in Christ, and also that we do good works because of God's command. However, good works do not merit our justification. Only Christ can make satisfaction for our sins. And so we hold that intention. And that's true for marriage as well. And yet marriage is a good and godly gift. It's one of the very first one that's given. It's given before the fall, which is a very important note on this. And so our consciences, understandably, would be burdened by rejecting something that has been so firmly built into creation and either thinking that we don't need it, that it's not a good and godly gift, or thinking that through this or through the rejection of it in particular, that we are going to somehow merit God's favor. And all of that in one way or another, and in fact, probably in multiple ways, is going to burden our consciences. And this is always a big concern that the reformers have. Uh, I would encourage anybody who reads the confessions 
or listens to them just to keep an eye or an ear out for the language of conscience. And you'll notice it is all over the place, but it's especially regarding justification and repentance where we are set right with God, that the articles that particularly deal with that. And then it gets expanded out into everything, including marriage, right? So, I mean, it's an incredibly important thing. And here it's particularly connected to, like I said, the thought that you somehow merit justification before God through this. And we see this. I mean, it's it's not so much necessarily in like something like holy orders, but we do see this in the church quite a bit where people think that, well, if I serve as an usher in the church, then I'm doing a particularly good work that's better than my being like a father or a husband or something like this. Or if I'm serving as like a trustee, or if I'm serving as, you know, an elder or whatever it might be, some sort of position in the church, which is good. Like we need people to do that and to do it faithfully. But those are not somehow more God-pleasing than being a husband or wife or mother or a father. In fact, I would say they're probably less God-pleasing because they're not something that's actually instituted into creation. They're other things that we have created. They're extra biblical things that we've created in the church in order to have an, a church that runs in an orderly manner, which is good. But the home, like we mentioned before, the home is the centerpiece of creation, the home and the family and marriage. And so those are the chief vocations that we're called into in society. And then we're broadly called into the church into one of two things, either to be a preacher or a hearer. And I would actually make the argument that the vocation of hearer is a higher calling than the vocation of preacher. Because if you read the texts dealing with like the office of the ministry, there's no gospel given to the office of the ministry. There's only more law. But there is some some wonderful gospel that gets connected into the the offices of the home, right? In fact, this is the language of the fourth commandment, you know, honor your father and mother that it may go well with you, et cetera. And then St. Paul says, this is the first commandment with a promise, right? There's promises connected to this. So all that to say that being a mother, father, husband, wife, these are very high callings from God. They are very glorious. And I think the reason why we're tempted to not think of them that way is because they're very common. Luther brings this up on like changing your child's diaper is a good work. But that's not how we think of it, right? And the more we can kind of reorient our minds to think of those sorts of things as being good works according to the commandments, the better off we're going to be and the further away we're going to drive ourselves from thinking that doing these other ancillary things are better and more God-pleasing good works because they're not. Yeah, as a matter of fact, he even says that, you know, changing the diaper of a baby is a higher calling than that of the monks and nuns, right? Right. And kind of makes this point that, and you're right, you know, we do see this in the church in this tension as if people somehow think that, and sometimes you get pushing for even kind of creating more things that I'm not sure are all that helpful, you know, like participating in leading the worship service instead of just letting the pastor do it and so forth, you know, that somehow that that means that you're being a more faithful Christian or you some people feel the need to, you know, that they have to go on these foreign mission trips and so forth, short terms, you know, and those sorts of things, but that somehow this fulfills this higher calling that they feel like they're supposed to do. And what I have often witnessed, and I think you can readily see, is what ends up suffering in that. Well, actually the home life, right? Because you're so busy with these things. And I've had to, in love, but I've had to, in love, push some very faithful, devout men who have a confusion of these things and are so busy being elders in the church and things like that, that their home life is suffering to the fact that they're not doing devotions with their children and their family. And it's like, you know, it's great. We want you to be here and to be involved and so forth. I think, you know, there will probably be a time and stage in life, season in life, when that may be more readily for you. But now the most important thing you can do is to be at home and to raise your children in the faith because that'll keep them in the faith, right? Whereas if you're here and you're giving all your time to this, then that's not going to be healthy for our church. There's not going to be a future to the church because your children are being raised absent the faith in that sense, right? And this falls in not just for men, but, you know, for mothers and fathers on both sides and so forth, that we get so caught up in these other things kind of outside that we fail to see the very holy thing that God gives to us in that. And I think that that's the other part here, too, of 
what does it say when among our clergy we make it seem like as it was for rome at the time and still today where it is a more higher calling to be in the clergy than the home well what does that tell my people that what they're doing and i think you hit on this well that what they're doing is somehow not holy or not good enough and so they're going to want to abandon those things and that's not going to lead to a well-ordered society and it doesn't actually produce a better stronger church either because you don't have great families christian families to make up the church and so it just kind of becomes this whole big mess and everything and that's where i think the genius of what saint paul does in first timothy of extolling that you know the overseer would be the husband of one wife and that he managed his own household well again i see this especially as a married pastor one of the best things i can do is and of course i'm a sinner and i fail at it but one of the best things i can do is to model with my own family what a christian family should look like and the more that we have that permeating our congregations the stronger the congregation is and it's just a great blessing but if somehow i say oh well you know yeah that's fine that you have families and so forth but really service at the church is the more important thing it's just going to tear apart the family and we're just going to have a mess right right well and i i know i talk about this when it comes to things like stewardship right is you know god gives you all the different things in your life your time your abilities your financial status your stuff all these things and they're given to you not only for your own enjoyment but especially to the service of your neighbor and it turns out that and this always kind of shocks people when when i say it at least at first that i don't want you to give all of your time and money and all of this to the church that's not being a good steward uh, that's in fact being a bad steward because you are going to neglect both your home and your society when you do that you need to take these things and serve your neighbor in your in the pew certainly but you also need to serve your neighbor in society and you especially need to serve your neighbor at home uh, luther makes this great remark that a man's closest neighbor is his wife right and we kind of forget that that we have these neighbors that are just built into our home we always think of neighbors as being external to our home and we need to reorient our understanding of that because that's not even the way Jesus defines neighbor, right? When he's talking with the uh, the lawyer who seeks to to test him and justify himself. And he asks, you know, who's my neighbor? And he tells the story of the Good Samaritan. And Jesus says, who of these proved to be a neighbor to the man in need? And the answer is the one who showed him mercy, right? So the question, who's my neighbor, ends up being, who needs my mercy? right? Well, who needs your mercy more than your spouse and children, right? And then you can extend out from there. And I think that's a really helpful way of looking at this and to see that the ones that God has placed the closest to us are the ones that deserve the highest calling and the majority of the, the good works that, that we're doing, right? And you can see that play out in the commandments and how we interact with our spouse and children through the commandments. Yeah, as you mentioned that, then, of course, permeating all of this is that theology that we've referenced several times, especially of the Sixth Commandment, right? That committing adultery, part of, you know, we, we always, when we have the commandments, you know, we have kind of the positive, if you will, how we keep this commandment, and then the negative, you know, how it's broken and so forth. And so we know the ways that that's broken in a whole host of things, right? And we can certainly talk about more of those. A lot of them are listed here as being part of what's going to happen when you kind of force this celibacy on the priest. But the way it's positively kept is that you would live a chaste, a sexually pure and decent life, right? And I think we need to accent some of those things as well here, especially as we talk about, you know, just that word chaste in there too. You know, sometimes that's confused with celibacy and, but is part of how we rightly keep this and live this. And once again, tying in here, how we model this as pastors for our people, for how they are to live as Christians within this holy estate of marriage as well. So yeah, get us into some of that, how we positively reflect this and keep this coming. Yeah. So, I mean, it's interesting when you're looking at the small catechism, the first commandment is obviously unique, but when you're looking at the explanations, the sixth commandment's the only one of the second nine that does not have a negative 
that's given in the explanation. We should fear and love God so that we lead a sexually pure and decent life in what we say and do in husband and wife, love and honor each other, right? Or in the language of the old translation, which I think is better, uh, at least at the first, the first part of it is that we lead a chaste life in word and deed. So it only gives us the positive. And that that's important because there, like you mentioned, there are so many ways of breaking the sixth commandment. We're very, very good at doing it. And it turns out that Luther makes this comment that he didn't want to give any extra ideas to people. Um, and that's why he didn't include a, a negative there. So I, I think that's probably wise. And even Gerhard and Chemnitz, when they're talking about instructing the sixth commandment, they talk about being very careful to not introduce novel sins into the minds of people. And I think that's really good pastoral advice on this. So like, let's just talk about it positively because there's plenty to do there. What does it mean to lead a chaste life? Well, the, the wonderful thing about chastity is that it actually governs the entirety of our lives. So are you single? Well, you lead a chaste life. Are you married? Well, you lead a chaste life. Are you a widow or widower? Well, you lead a chaste life. Whatever estate, whatever your position is, according to the sixth commandment, chastity covers that. And it covers it also in a whole myriad of ways. So it's not just your actions, right? So we, we are called to live chastely with what we do with our body, for sure. But we're also called to have chaste lips. We're called to have chaste ears and chaste eyes. We're called to have chaste dress. So particularly Chemnitz, when he's commenting on the sixth commandment, he draws out all these different ways in which we are to live chastely. And he just kind of sections it out and he ends up giving like six or seven different categories of chastity that just govern the entirety of our lives. He even distinguishes, if I remember correctly, he distinguishes between our physical actions and our mannerisms, right? So the whole idea is that there is a godly way for us to live according to the sixth commandment that at its core is always seeking to do what's in Hebrews, Hebrews 13, which is referenced kind of in passing in this, and that is that marriage be held in honor among all, right? So how do we hold marriage in honor? Well, it turns out like talking poorly about marriage and about spouses and husbands and wives, denigrating men and women and all this sort of stuff. It turns out that does not help people to hold the estate of marriage in high regard. So part of living chastely is speaking well about marriage and spouse and children and all these sorts of things. Um, it doesn't help people to uphold the honor and dignity of marriage by dressing immodestly. So we want to dress modestly for the sake of the estate of marriage, but also for the sake of our brothers and sisters' eyes, that they would have chaste eyes. We want to not introduce novel sins into our ears. And so we want to have chaste ears so that we can continue in our minds upholding the good and godly nature of, of marriage. Like everything's kind of driving at, at that thing in, in Hebrews that marriage would be held in honor among all. And so that this picture of chastity. It's interesting to me how much we lose by losing that language. And like you said, conflating this in our minds with something like celibacy or abstinence or something like that. It's so much more than that. It's not just a prohibition of this. Like as a husband, I am called to lead a chaste life. And there's a particular shape to that. That's not me being celibate or abstinent, right? So it will follow you wherever you go, and it gives a positive shape to how you live according to this commandment, and in a way that's actually tangible. It's not this just general idea of like living a celibate life or living in abstinence or something like this. It actually tells me like, no, here's what I actually can do in order to do this well, and that's a good thing. This is part of this, this sixth commandment actually being a joyful thing for us. Yeah, and I think you hit on it there well that living chastely is, you know, within the marriage estate or as a single person, right? You know, it's it's basically upholding, this is kind of the way I boil it down, is upholding what God has said marriage is and saying that is only to be carried out according to his design. We live according to his word, you know, as a single person with living in celibacy with that chaste idea looking towards that gift of marriage and that it's only between one man and one woman within that confine of marriage within marriage right it is with my spouse only right 
and we live according to God's word and all of these sorts of things, because what we see then, not to kind of go negative here, because I, you just spoke so well of how, you know, the sixth commandment does speak so positively on this. And, and that is a great thing that I love to accent in my catechesis as well, you know, especially when I teach on this with confirmands and things like that and children in the church is that we just uphold what marriage is. But I think once again, relating to this and the example that clergy present in this for their people and why this article that seems to matter only for clergy or something actually matters so much more is because, and you hit it on right at the beginning towards the, the first segment, is what happens when we don't live chastely as the clergy? What kind of example does that set for us? And what destruction does that do to the faith of the laity and to the church in general and so forth? There's great scandal that comes out of this. They talk about it here in the confession as it happens with the priests. We see it happen with the priests still today. But we see it even among married clergy when they don't live chastely and they have marital unfaithfulness and all of those sorts of issues. You know, it just causes so much scandal in the church. And I know, you know, that the apology talks some about this too and some of the examples that kind of come out of this as well, even within society. So with just maybe four minutes or so left here, kind of bring in some of the apology, but talk to this issue some again too about how not living in faithfulness here creates this great scandal. Yeah, so right at the beginning of the apology, they use this term. They say that, I'm just, I'm just going to read this because it's actually kind of nice, in a not good way, but it's nice the way they phrase this. Where in any history can one read of greater rudeness than this of the adversaries? We will review their argument later. Now let the wise reader consider how shameful these good-for-nothing men are. They claim that marriages produce scandal and disgrace to the government as though this public scandal of criminal and unnatural lusts glowing among these very holy fathers were a great ornament to the church, while they pretend that they are curie and live like bacchanals. So they're saying, look, the argument is that marriage itself is the thing that's actually causing the scandals. And what we want to do is, this is the argument of Rome, we, what we want to do is remove marriage so because marriage is the scandal. So we want to remove that so that there's not the scandal. But all the meantime, they're in the background committing all these shameless acts. And they use this term, the Bacchanals, which is just great because it's a reference to Bacchus, the Greek god of drink and wine. And it's this reference to kind of the, the hedonism that was going on. That is this living for pleasure that occurred. And you even found this, you know, Luther, when he goes to Rome, is just absolutely appalled with what he finds there, right? He had this picturesque view of Rome and he gets there and he's like, oh, that is not at all what I thought it was. And it's all of this hedonism that's just kind of crept in quasi behind the scenes. But I mean, it wasn't even being hidden that much, right? Everybody kind of knew it was going on and just kind of turned a blind eye to it. And so the reformers are like, no, you simply can't live that way because it's an affront to marriage. And I, I mentioned this, you know, previously, you know, you've got the issue of not being faithful to what the scriptures say. You will always want to uphold the estates that God gives in the scriptures and what his word gives to us, that marriage is a good estate and we want to uphold that. But I think one of the other things that's, that's sitting in the background of the reformers, why they're so concerned about this and the reason why this is such a big issue of upholding the goodness of marriage, especially among the clergy, is because of the destruction that it brings to the church itself because the church is the bride of Christ. There is this marital picture that's given between Christ and the church that is to be reflected into husband and wife. And so when you break that and when you dishonor that, especially when it's being done within the church and from pastors themselves, with it being the shadow on earth, this ends up bringing great shame to Christ and his bride more broadly. And I think that that is one of the things that's going on there, which then to kind of flip this on the other side to maybe close on a little bit more positive note is to realize the great beauty then that is inherent in this, right? Of all the pictures that the Lord uses to describe our connection to him in Christ, it's that of marriage, right? That the church, that the saints who hear the gospel and receive the gift of the sacraments, that we are 
wedded to Christ in this mystical sort of way and are presented to him without spot or blemish, that all of our sins are covered with his blood and he loves us in that way, right? And to see that then marriage is then on earth a reflection or is supposed to be a reflection of that and not only of the clergy, but of everybody, because it is this beautiful picture of our salvation, right? And that, and that gets reflected into the home and spread out into society. And when that is going well, not only does society work well, the church functions well, the home functions well, but we're constantly seeing this picture of what our salvation looks like just everywhere we turn. We're seeing this picture of Christ and his bride, the church. And that is a wonderful thing to see. Absolutely. And that is a beautiful way to close that out. I said this would happen, that we'd actually run out of time. And that is where we kind of need to wrap the show up today. Unfortunately, so much more that we could talk about. But next week, we will push on and, and move forward into Article 24 on the Mass. For today, thank you to Pastor Sean Kilgo for joining us for Concord Matters and teaching us this Lutheran confession on the marriage of priests from Article 23 of the Augsburg Confession. It's been a great pleasure having you join us here today, Pastor Kilgo. Yeah, it's great to be here. Thank you also to our underwriter, Wicking Vicar. Check out their performance clerical wear at wickingvicar.com. And thank you also, dear listener, for stopping by today. And until next time, keep confessing, church.